Yetov is always over 40 years of singing it. Maybe 8,000 times I sang it, and I gotta say, I've never had to duplicate it. It's rewritten every day, again and again and again. I always say it's almost like doing the Amidah when you pray three times a day. You know, the real believer will do the Amidah, the Shemona every time as if it's the first time he's ever done it because he's actually putting himself back on course. So I don't pray, I sing Yetov. That is my prayer. I contemplate, I mean every word. I don't care where, who I'm singing for, the hillbillies, for rednecks, for whitewoods, for Spanish, for gypsies, for whatever. It's always a Yetov in the end, and they get it. They don't understand a word, and they get it. It's, it's odd because it's also the first song I ever wrote. I wrote it right here, on this sofa, 40 years ago. Face it, when it comes to Israel, everything is complicated. Politics are complicated, religion is complicated, democracy is complicated, the conflict is complicated, even our complications are complicated. These are the things that take us out to the street, that make us shout and cry, that fill us with hope and just as often plunge us into utter despair. But Israel's now 70. And well, my mom always told me that there's a time and a place for everything. And a 70th birthday party? It's most definitely not the time or the place for shouting and yelling. So over the past few months, we set off in search of a unicorn. An island within Israeli society that somehow escapes complexity. Sports wasn't it. Neither was food or history. We circled through ethnic groups, religious traditions, high-tech innovations, people who were all born on Independence Day 1948, and even folks called Israel Israeli. But somehow all those directions led us straight to arguments and battles and wars. Till one day, we found it. The much-coveted unicorn. The island of Israeliness that brings us together more than it divides us. Music. Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. Israel Story is brought to you by PRX and is produced together with Tablet Magazine. So, we're about to embark on our first ever mini series which is all based on our newest live show, Mixtape. Over the next few episodes, we'll tell the stories behind some of Israel's most iconic tunes. It's sort of a musical journey through anthems, songs of yearning, of war, of peace. And today, 
Mixtape Part 1. Our hope? What is it about Israeli music that unites us, that allows people from different political persuasions, from different social spheres, from different backgrounds and ethnicities and religions even, to come together and sing? Here's Israeli author David Grossman. There is this Israeli phenomena of shira uh, betzibur. Sing-alongs. Sing-along, yeah. That people are gathering, usually at a home, and uh, maybe they screen the, the words of uh, lyric, and there is someone with a piano or accordion, and we are all singing. And by singing, I feel, and I love to sing in these uh, gatherings, as if we touch the, the basis of our uh, existence. I also love these sing-alongs. When I was a kid, our neighbors, the Dukatlis, used to host them. And I remember how I'd climb over the fence and see the husband, Pinchas, who was later killed by a suicide bomber, play his accordion. These were songs of a different era, of pioneers, of palmachniks, of Eretz Yisrael HaYeshana Ve'atova, good old Israel. These songs, till today, make me and most Israelis, I think, feel at home. But Israeli music doesn't just unite Israelis. With all due respect to ICQ or Cherry Tomatoes, it's one of our greatest exports. Simple, beautiful, accessible. It just brings a smile to everyone's face and makes everyone feel great about Israel, and for a moment, at least. We could stop talking about all the complexities of Israel, conflict, uh, challenges, and just really learn to love that sense of culture and therefore love the people and the land of Israel. And you probably know exactly what Mitch Cohen, the international director of Ramah Camps, is talking about. I mean, just think of it. I bet many of you have found yourselves, whether it was at summer camp or in a youth movement activity, sitting around humming some songs like, well, like these ones. Thank you. 
שהכל יהיה בסדר. תמיד ידעתי שיבוא היום שבו צריך להיפרד. אבל עכשיו, אבל עכשיו זה ככה בא לי פתאום. אז מה הפלא שאני קצת טועה? אוף גוזר, חתוך את But it isn't only Arik Einstein that makes us feel all tingly inside and connected to Israel. There are other artists who have written songs that made it into the pantheon of Israeli music classics. One of them, a song that I grew up singing, actually started its life in English, far away from all the hustle and bustle of Israel. The original name of it is um, The End of the Beginning, because I wrote it in English originally. Really? Yeah, yeah. That's David Broza who we heard talking about Yetov at the very beginning of the episode. wrote it in a, in a little town on the most northeastern tip of the United States, right under the border of Canada in a place called Eastport, Maine. The year was 1990. Just before the Gulf War. And David, one of Israel's most celebrated musicians, was in a funk. He had come to Eastport in search of a local poet, only to discover she had recently left town. It was a big sky and it was already like 20 degrees Fahrenheit, so it's really cold. He sat down, took out his guitar, started playing some bluesy chords, and singing to himself. This is the end. I was really down. The end of the beginning. And I'm changing with the winds of time. I was like, felt like, okay, this is the end. A few months later, the Gulf War began. Israel was bombarded by dozens of Iraqi Scud missiles, and people constantly had to rush to the nearby Miklat, the shelter, in the middle of the night. David, he was living in New Jersey at the time, far away from all the Balagan. But one of his good friends, a guy called Meir Ariel, was back in Tel Aviv where most of the Scuds were falling. Meir was also a very famous Israeli singer-songwriter. Remember his name, we're going to meet him again next episode. Anyway, all the stress and tension of war, it was too much for Meir. He couldn't stand the scud and the threats and the gas masks. So Meir and his wife Tirza packed up their kids and took refuge with David in the Garden State. So he, he came over and his son Shachar heard me play this song to my son. He said, well, what is that? said, nothing. He said, oh, my dad should look at it. So Meir took it and went to a quiet corner. It was actually the only corner was in the bathroom. Sat there for 20 minutes and came out with Mitachat HaShamayim. When David released a clip of the song from a sunrise performance in Masada, it became an instant 
שקט. It just went crazy and it, be- and it became an iconic song in my career. Before uh, you had uh, you know, social media, it had a viral effect and it just everybody went crazy. Did this surprise you? Everything surprises me. It didn't take long before Israelis brought mitachat l'shamayim, under the sky, all over the world. I can hear my songs being sung in, in Melbourne, Australia, or in Curitiba, Brazil, or in Brussels, and faraway villages, and wherever places the people are, you know, and uh, India, uh, Philippines, uh, you know, amazing. It's beautiful. With its universal message of love and togetherness, Mitachat L'Shamayim quickly became a modern-day Israeli anthem. It's not about Zionism, it's not about politics, it's not about, you know, you gotta sing in Hebrew because you gotta be part of the Israel story. It's just a cool song. I don't preach it. I don't like to preach. And I don't like to tell people how things should be. I will do it. And if you watch me, you will know how to do it. And then you can follow, if you like it. And if you don't, do it your own way. So today, in honor of Israel's 70th birthday, we wanted to bring you a few tension-free episodes, during which you can all just sit down in your chairs, relax, and revel in the cozy warmth that is Israeli music. Act One, Hatikva. Here's Zev Levi. In May 2014, the Hamas released a YouTube video. It was a song, a surprising song. The Israeli national anthem, Hatikva. Why would Israel's sworn enemy, an organization that calls for the destruction of the Zionist entity, spend money producing their version of Israel's ceremonial tune? Like you burn the flag in your demonstration, you can burn the anthem too. That's musicologist Edwin Sarosi, who has spent a lot of time researching Atikva and its significance. So singing the anthem is saying, I belong to this nation symbolically. A few bars of music and text, and you have the state. You don't need more than that. Today, Atikva and Israel are basically synonymous. They go hand-in-hand hand like pitta and hummus. But it wasn't always like that. There was, to begin with, one pretty important man who did everything he could to bury the tune. Herzl, the founder of the Zionist movement, didn't like this song very much. 
Particularly, he really despised the poet. Theodor Herzl hated Hatikva because he thought that the lyricist was an embarrassment to Zionism. His name was Naftali Hertz Imba. He was a very colorful personality. The archetype of the poet never had a job, never could maintain a job, drunk all the time, living at the expense of others. Imba was born in Galicia, modern-day Ukraine, in 1856. At 25, he set out for Palestine, and in his pocket he carried a notebook full of his half-finished Hebrew poems. One of them was called Tikvatenu, Our Hope. Naftali Herzhimber used to recite Tikvatenu in front of all the farmers here in Palestine. As you can imagine, the backbreaking work of land clearing and city building didn't put a poet's skills in high demand. Doctors, farmers, engineers, sure. Eccentric poets who wanted to discuss mysticism? Not so much. So Imba bounced between communities in Haifa, Yusod Amala, Rosh Pina, Mishmara Yarden, and Petach Tikva. At night, he would perform his poetry for the locals. And during the day, while they worked the fields, he would raid their wine cellars. In 1886, Tikvatenu was included in Imba's first book of Hebrew poetry, Barakai, or Morning Star. Now, Tikvatenu is not Hatikva. It's nine stanzas long and has no music. But it was popular. One of its early fans was Samuel Cohen, a winemaker from Romania who started humming a few of the verses to a Romanian folk song, Karol Kuboi, or Cart with Oxen. The song has no connection to Imba's Tikvatenu. He just felt that they fit well together. And he sings that for his friends. And somehow people like it. And from the point of view of communications and technology in Ottoman Palestine, it still surprised me how fast this song becomes disseminated. The folk tune, now shortened and recognizable as a tikva, became a grassroots hit. It captured Zionist imagination and rang true to Jews around the world. But it only really broke out in August 1903 in Basel, Switzerland. The Sixth Zionist Congress was a buzz. Representatives were at each other's throats over the Uganda proposal, the idea of creating a temporary Jewish state in East Africa. On one side, those who felt that settling anywhere outside the land of Israel, even temporarily, was an abandonment of Zionist goals, a betrayal of Jewish history. On the other, the pragmatists. To them, a Jewish country anywhere in the world would save Jewish lives from looming pogroms. The debate quickly got out of hand, as the representatives felt the weight of a 2,000-year-long history on their shoulders. The Russian delegation actually walked out, but to no avail. The Uganda proposal passed, 295 in favor to 178 against. Those committed to the physical land of Israel had failed to sway the minds of the assembly. So in a last anguished stand, they rose to sway their hearts. They got up and they sing a tikva. This move wasn't joyful or triumphant. It was a reprimand. 
They sang Hatikva to remind their peers of one of its lines. Ayn Litzion Sophia, the eye looks towards Zion. And by doing so, a Hebrew poem penned by a misfit and stuck to a random Romanian tune became the unlikely political anthem of a country that didn't yet exist. Pretty quickly, Hatikva transformed from a Zionist anthem into a global Jewish one. Synagogues printed it in collections of piyotim and read it during services. Publishing houses included it in Passover Haggadot, right along with the local national anthem. In 1945, a BBC reporter witnessed the liberation of the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. He recorded the camp's survivors performing their first Friday evening Shabbat service as free people. These people knew they were being recorded. They wanted the world to hear their voice. They made a tremendous effort, which quite exhausted them. Listen. Since Israel's establishment in 1948, Hatikva has been sung at every state ceremony. Still though, many Israelis claim that it doesn't represent their Israel. There's no mention of God, the Bible, or modern Israeli history. In fact, after Israel's swift military victory in the 1967 war, a member of Knesset introduced a bill to adopt a new, more triumphant song as the national anthem. You'll hear all about that later on. And of course, Hatikva excludes 20% of Israelis. Hatikva is song for Jewish people. Nefesh Yehudi. Nefesh Yehudi. Ani lo nefesh Yehudi. I am Arab. Ani nefesh Arab nefesh. Meet Rifat Turk, the Israeli Colin Kaepernick. Rifat was born in Jaffa in 1954 and still lives in his old neighborhood. He's muscular and bald, with a beaming smile and a powerful stare. In 1976, he became the first Arab on Israel's national soccer team. I'm from Jaffa, go to the Olympic Games with the national team. Oh, was wow, it's big, big, special. On the pitch, at the start of his first international game, Hatikva rang out through the loudspeakers. But unlike his vocal teammates, Rifat stood silently. I don't song Hatikva. It's Hatikva, it's not for me. Don't get him wrong. Rifat was overjoyed to represent his country. It's just that, while Herzl had an issue with Hatikva's lyricist, Rifat's issue was with the lyrics. If the anthem's lyrics were about love and consideration of people like me, he says, I'd happily sing it. But some saw his silence as an attack on Israel itself. He told us a few stories of playing for Hapoel Tel Aviv against Jerusalem rivals, Beitar Yerushalayim. Uh, I kill you, go play in this Syria, go Lebanon, go play with Arafat. It is uh, very, very, very difficult. But every game, 
Sometimes I go home, I'm cry. Why? Why? What are you doing? I, I just I play football. I'm not uh, kill people. I'm not uh, make uh, something bad or just I come to play. Though the Jerusalem club has repeatedly denounced such hooliganism, Abbas Suwan knows exactly what Rifat means. He also played for the Israeli national team from 2004 to 2006. All the Arab players don't say, say that thing. Nobody. Right after he scored this game-tying goal in the last minute of a World Cup qualifier against Ireland, Abbas arrived in Jerusalem for a league game. And uh, Bitar Jerusalem bring very big uh, sign. The sign read, Abbas Suwan does not represent us. And that's really what Hatikva struggles have always been about. Representation. Herzl was a Zionist who thought the song didn't represent Zionism. Rifat Turk and Abbas Suwan are Israelis who think the song doesn't represent Israel. And they all faced widespread opposition. In a 1901 letter to Herzl, Imba expressed his delight at the growing popularity of his song. Although the Zionists treated me ill, he wrote, I am still a Zionist and am happy to see my dreams realized. So, in the end, both Herzl and Imba were vindicated. Herzl was right about Imba, who in 1909 died penniless of chronic alcoholism in New York. And Imba, the eccentric poet was indeed immortalized together with his Hatikva. But Sarosi, the anthem expert, told us it might just be Rifat and Abbas who'll have the final say. If you ask me if Hatikva will be the anthem of Israel forever, ever, I cannot tell you a certain answer may change. Zev Levi. So you might have noticed that Zev said that back in the late 60s, there was a member of Knesset who wanted to replace Hatikva. Well, this is him. I am Uri of Neri. I'm 94 years old. In my youth, I was a terrorist against the British. And later, I was a combat soldier in the Israeli War of Independence. I've all my life been a peace activist, and I'm a peace activist now. Uri, what led you to suggest changing the Israeli anthem? Well, I detest the Israeli anthem, because the anthem has nothing to do with Israel. It was composed by an unimportant poet, and uh, it is about Jews somewhere abroad who are longing for the land of Israel. It has nothing to do with people in the land of Israel. I don't turn to the east, because I live in the middle. In the east, I'm looking at Jordan or, or, or India or China. It is a completely irrelevant 
song irrelevant to a state in which we have two different populations, the Jewish and the, and the Arab. And I, I'm, for, for many, many years, I'm thinking about the need to get rid of this anthem and have a real Israeli anthem. In 1965, Uri was elected to the Knesset as the sole representative of his party, Haolam Azeh, which was, despite the fact that Uri himself never cared for the designation, a radical left-wing party. Uri and his followers were labeled as mischievous troublemakers. Well, we wanted to create a different Israel. But his suggestion to replace the national anthem following the Six-Day War was unusual if not borderline bizarre, even for him. What was even more of a shocker, both then and today really, was the song he proposed as Hatikva's replacement. The Anthem of the War We're going to tell you the story of that song next time. Till then you can catch up on all our past episodes in both English and Hebrew on our site, on iTunes, and on any of the other main podcast platforms. Also, if you really want to help us grow and reach new listeners, please spread the word. Share your favorite episodes and stories on social media, tell your friends, your family, and sign them up to our feed. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. And if you want to sponsor episodes of Israel Story, simply drop us a line at sponsor at prx.org. As I mentioned, this is the first part of our music mini-series, which is all based on our latest live show tour throughout North America. Of course, we can't give you the full experience of a live show. Live music, amazing original artwork, images, video, and just the energy of being on the stage. So if you didn't get a chance to catch us live, and would like us to come to your town next time around, email us at livetour at israelstory.org. Thanks to everyone who made this tour happen, and especially to our tour manager, Hannah Barg. In Virginia, thanks to the one and only Robin Mankel, and to Art and Annie Sandler, the most gracious and generous hosts I've ever had the privilege of meeting. To Nati Chorev, Melissa Eichelbaum, Greg Damanti, and all our friends from the Virginia Arts Festival and the United Jewish Federation of Tidewater. It took a treacherous 17-hour drive through a snowstorm to get to Toronto, but Ben Moraine, Lily Shaddock, and Leah Braslau of the New Israel Fund Canada couldn't have been kinder and more supportive. Thanks, guys. And thanks also to Peter Fellhaber, Lynn and Aubrey Kaufman, and Alyssa and Gil Palter. To our JCC Manhattan family, Joy Levitt, Sheila Lambert, Amanda Crater, Matt Temkin, Megan England, Sam Brunswick, Philip Sandstorm, and, it goes without saying, Megan Whitman. Thanks also to Hanoch Piven, Igor Berogovsky, Nomi Schneider, Esther Werdiger, Wayne Hoffman, Ali Ottman, Rachel Misrati, Iziman, Guy Arieli, and Ilan Benzion. This episode was recorded by Russell Castiglione and Josh Peel at the Dubway Studios in New York. One, two, hey, and our favorite, Sela Weissblum, mixed it all up. Hey.
Israel Story is brought to you by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine. Our staff includes Yochai Meital, Shai Satran, Maya Kosover, Roy Gilron, Zev Levi, Ari Wenig, Hannah Barg, Rotem Tzin, Judah Kaufman, and Abby Nushatz. Dotan Mushanov and Ari Wenig, together with Ruth Danon, Eden Jamshid, and Ronnie Wagner-Schmidt, are the mixtape band, whose music will accompany this entire mini-series. I'm Ishi Harman, and we'll be back very, very soon with part two of our mini-series. So till then, shalom shalom. And yalla bye. This gramophone. Atikva. Par Monsieur Cohen. Que l'autre belle babine ma. Nefeshi ho di ho mia Wil fahati mezrah qadima Ayin li seon sofia Mutlu emba kibatrenu
بے قلم مولا یبیلو